This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fambregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight's special guest is John Lamb Lash, Meta History and Gnosticism. This will be one of those shows that you will have to listen to many times. Truly mind-bending. John Lash will be with us shortly. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. You'll receive instant access to all our shows. And remember, Veritas survives on your voluntary subscriptions only. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe and take Veritas with you. And the cold weather is already here. And you already hear the coughing and the sneezing. Don't be caught off guard and order your MMS directly from us, whether you live in the United States or abroad. And if you buy health supplements anywhere, you are paying too much. Why don't you take a look at our news source featured on our website and compare 
You can buy as many products as you'd like. They have thousands and only pay $5.95 for your entire shipment. And you also get a 30-day return policy. Pure quality. Check them out. And I only have a few USB drives left with Season 1. Before I place another order, you get all of Season 1 shows, bonus chats, ebooks, and all the music of Season 1. Lots of bonuses. Go to the Veritas store link on our website and take a look at all the contents. And if you need to get in touch with me, go to our website and click on the contact button or join me on Facebook. I have two very important announcements to make on this Veritas second anniversary month. First, I would like to introduce a new amenity to Veritas members, a new chapter in this journey, Veritas TV. As you may know, Veritas has been and continues to be work in progress. Now that I feel comfortable with the audio side, I'm now immersing myself into the video production aspects. As I've always said from the beginning, I have no formal background in journalism, radio, or video production. Everything you have witnessed from day one has been nothing but a learning process. I hope you have learned as much as I have. In the past year, I have collected a few video interviews and short clips, and it's now time to share them with you. I have a few more videos that I will be uploading in the next few days. I also intend to start adding video interviews and lectures as they become available. So enjoy and check back periodically. I'm really excited for the beginning of this Veritas phase. Please excuse the technical errors you may more than likely see. It was either waiting a few more weeks of analysis paralysis or simply uploading them as is. I chose the latter. The feature video was filmed on November the 6th, 2010, and it includes a fascinating lecture by Dr. Claude Swanson, The Science of the Paranormal. This lecture was superb, and Dr. Swanson will be on Veritas very soon. So there you have it, Veritas TV, a new phase in the Veritas journey. Where is it? Go to the website and click on the TV link. And here's the second important announcement. I have decided to do a special show for the holidays. On December 24th, I will air a show without a guest. It will be just me answering your questions on the air. Many of you frequently ask me specifics about the show, about me, about the topics we discuss, feature plans and ideas. That's when I decided to produce a special edition of Veritas called Inside Veritas. Your participation is requested. How? By submitting one question. Anything goes. The requirement is that you have to be an active Veritas member, and it has to be one question only. The deadline is December 19th, but I may stop much earlier if a limit of questions is reached, so don't wait too long. Furthermore, I will raffle a metal-cased 8GB USB drive containing Season 2 among those of you who submit a question. So what are you waiting for? Submit your questions soon. Here are the instructions. Go to our website, VeritasShow.com, and click on the Contact button. You will see a link to Inside Veritas with instructions. I want to make sure that those who don't have anywhere to go during Christmas Eve will not be alone that night. When you listen to Veritas, you are never alone. Thank you for your participation, and good luck in winning the USB drive. It's going to be a fun show. 
and the holidays are here. And if you're still thinking of what to give for the holidays, why not give the gift of truth? Give a Veritas subscription. You can buy three, six, and nine months, or one or two years. Give something that may change people's lives, not something that may be put away in a drawer forever. Plus, you'll be supporting the show in the new year. Just go to the Veritas store and change someone's life. And one last thing. Today's CNN poll asks, do you think life exists on other planets? 85% of the respondents said yes. What does that tell you? Perhaps the population won't react to the war of the world scenario again. We can handle the truth and are ready for disclosure. John Lash unravels historical textual evidence exposing the cover-up, conspiracy, an agenda behind the betrayal of humanity's spiritual heritage. Principles, he informs, deviated by a political system in the guise of religion, a religion modeled primarily from patriarchal domination, ignited by the delusional beliefs, intimidation, and the power of suffering, living in its wake a horrific legacy of conquest and conversion by violent force, suppression, and hypocrisy. Join me as we discuss the evidence that describes the source and motivation behind the tragic eradication of the mystery schools by these forces. If you want to continue believing, stop this audio now. If you want to know, don't go anywhere. John Lamb Lash is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. This is the Karaha Sitching, and you are listening to a wonderful radio interview conducted by Mel. John Lamb Lash has been called the true successor of Mershe Eliade and the rightful heir of Joseph Campbell. Unlike those two world-class academics, John is a self-educated freelance scholar who combines studies and experimental mysticism to teach directive mythology, that is, the application of myth to life, rather than its mere interpretation. He is a leading exponent of the power of myth to direct individual experience and drive historical events over the long term. An expert on sidereal mythology, naked-eyed astronomy, procession, and the world ages, he also teaches the critique of belief systems. On metahistory.org, he presents a radical revision of Gnosticism, with original commentaries 
on the Nag Hammadi codices. He also presents the only complete restoration by any scholar of the Sophianic myth of the pagan mysteries, the sacred story of Gaia Sophia, recounting the origin of the earth and the human species from the galactic core. John Lash is the only scholar of comparative mythology so far known to have rewritten a classical myth, giving it a different outcome, Orpheus and Eurydice. His published works are The Seeker's Handbook, Twins and the Double, The Hero, Manhood and Power, Quest for the Zodiac, and Not in His Image. In John Lash's own words, he says, I have only this to tell you about my enlightenment. It's yours. And directly from the southernmost point of continental Europe, Punta de Tarifa, Andalucía, southern Spain, I'm proud to introduce John Lamb Lash. Hello, Mr. Lash, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Well, thank you very much, Mel. I'm fine, and that's a wonderful introduction. I thank you very much for that, what you said. It's my pleasure. May I call you John? Yes, please do. <laughs> and first, let's define who you are, John. Honestly, it's been somewhat enigmatic to me, the subject of Gnosticism. I'm, I'm, I have to be honest. I'm, uh, we spoke the other day, and it, I'm somewhat new, and a lot of our listeners are probably new, too. So I want to make sure I tell everybody that I got your latest book, Not in His Image. I cannot put it down, but I got it about a week ago, and I've only been able to absorb about one-third. So I can only cover so much today, and there is so much to discuss that I'm offering you, John, more shows in the future to continue because the amount of material that you cover is so vast, there's no way we can discuss today. Do you agree with that? I agree, Mel, and I uh, thank you very much for that opportunity. Uh, it's really necessary to proceed in that way. Uh, because the subject of Gnosticism is so important, and it has taken an enormous amount of work in the last 65 years since these texts were discovered. It's taken an enormous amount of work by other scholars and by myself to restore and recover the essential message of Gnosticism. And that's what we'll talk about this evening, because I firmly believe that the essential message of Gnosticism is the key ingredient for the planetary shift and for a sane and compassionate future for the human species. So it's a very, very big subject and certainly warrants taking it in several uh, doses. And tell us who John Lash is. We want to know of your background. What made you look into Gnosticism and all these areas that the mainstream media and mainstream academics don't even cover? Well, I have a couple of uh, factors in my character that would account for the course I've taken in life. Basically, I'm just a country boy from Maine. I grew up in a very beautiful coastal village in the state of Maine, a place called Friendship, Friendship, Maine. It's a lobster fishing village. And I grew up in the pristine beauty of nature. And there were two factors in my life that directed me on the path uh, that I've taken. The first one is that from an early age, I had a number of startling uh, and really overpowering uh, spiritual or supernatural experiences. And uh, I don't think that I'm a unique in that category. 
In fact, I tend to think that many, many people do have these experiences as well. And they have them when they're quite young. The trick is to stick with those experiences, to remain with them and to develop them and learn from them. And that's not so easy to do because uh, you might be a child of eight or nine and have some supernatural experience. You might have a lucid dream such as I had, or you might have some encounter with an interdimensional being. You might have had a guide or messenger that showed you something or a moment in nature when something divine was revealed to you. And then you go back to ordinary life and there's no support for your experience and your education and your parents and the people in the church and the people in the town or city don't necessarily give you the recognition. So what I was able to do was to stick with those experiences that I had. And I've always had then, I would say, a very intimate relationship to the divine and the supernatural forces that are at the source of our life. The second factor just came out of my character. I mean, it's just a rebellious kid. I think all kids are. You know, I questioned everything. I did not like what people told me. I did not believe what they told me, especially about religion and God. Uh, the little town that I grew up in, the fishing village, was really a fundamentalist Christian community, and they laid it on me very heavy. Uh, so I got that whole program, uh, accept Christ as your personal savior, the whole belief that the Old and New Testaments contain some kind of blueprint for human destiny, you know, that sort of idea. And I just did not buy it for a second. And again, I think I'm not so different from many other people who also reject this culturation and this religious and spiritual programming. But the problem is you have to hold on to your rejection really hard because they will try to knock it out of you and they will try to make you conform. And so somehow I managed to have the strength to stick with my uh, own experience. And that's what makes me a heretic. <laughs> and, and, and heretic is the great word. You are a heretic as well. Yes. And heretic, you know, is a very beautiful word, Mel, because it just comes from the Greek verb, which means to choose, to have a choice. And, you know, it's like I wrote in Not in His Image, uh, Christianity, for instance, is a religion, it's a creed embraced by billions of people, but rarely chosen by anyone, because you only have a choice when you have an option. And if you had an option to Christianity or Buddhism or Judaism, perhaps you choose the option. So heresy, and we're going to be talking about that tonight, because the Gnostics were heretics, Heresy is about having an option and keeping your option open. And this is very important in spiritual development and not easy. And I think it's very important also to define two words. I don't want to call this show Narcissism 101, but pretty close. Can you define sure. metahistory and mm -hmm. Gnosticism? Sure. Metahistory is a word I invented when uh, I was working with a group of other people around 2001, a nonprofit foundation who wanted me to do a website for them. I invented the term metahistory 
for the name of the website, which is metahistory.org. Metahistory simply is like metaphysics or metanoia. It means beyond history. So what does it mean to go beyond history? Well, what is history? You know, history is the story we are told about humanity. That, in the largest sense, is what history is. Now, if that story is true, then we have a true story to guide us. But if that story of history that we're told is full of lies, disinformation, errors, and things that are only present in the story in order to condition and control our minds, then when we become enslaved to a false agenda for the realization of our humanity. And so meta-history is to go beyond those conditioning scripts of history and to find a true story for our humanity and a true story for the planet. That's the purpose of that site. And Gnosticism? Well, Gnosticism is a word that is very problematic. You know, scholars got together in 1966, I think it was, <laughs> at this famous uh, conference called the Messina Conference. The highest, most uh, respected Gnostic scholars in the world met in Italy to discuss how to define Gnosticism. And they met for like three days, and guess what? They couldn't come up with a definition. <laughs> have you? But I will... Uh, I have come up with a work, what I consider a workable definition. First of all, you need to know is that the Greek word gnosis means knowledge. That's all. So a Gnostic is somebody who knows, a knower. But the trick to the definition is what kind of knowledge? What kind of knowledge is Gnosticism? And I think the best definition for starting would be to say that Gnosticism is the knowledge of the true identity of humanity and our place in the cosmic order. That is true gnosis. If we know who humanity really is, where we came from, and what we are doing on this planet, and how our life on this planet belongs to a design of the cosmic order, then we have gnosis. We have knowledge of the divine basis of human reality. And while we're at it, before mm -hmm. we, can, we can start, another definition, pagan. Define pagan. Well, pagan means somebody who lives in the country and somebody who lives close to nature. Uh, that's the root definition. The historical definition is that pagans were the indigenous people of Europe prior to the rise of Christianity. A good, uh, helpful uh, comparison might be this. Uh, I use it in my book. Uh, prior to the arrival of Europeans in America and North America and in Mexico and South America, uh, many indigenous peoples lived there in different tribes. And they were pagans. Those were pagans. The Native Americans were pagans. The Aztec and the Maya, people who lived in close to nature and lived in a culture that was pre-Christian or non-Christian. Those are pagans. And right now, paganism or pagan, it's almost a derogatory word. If you utter the word pagan... Oh, it is a derogatory word yeah. because it's been, uh, it's been demonized. But that was a systematical program 
to demonize paganism, to say, for instance, the early Christian uh, uh, ideologues who were promoting the message of Christianity, the message of salvation and the Messiah, said about the pagan people of Europe, uh, well, they uh, go out into nature and they uh, give offerings to trees and rocks and they talk to the sky and the clouds as if they were alive. And they talk about the earth as if it was a goddess. And all of that is evil because they are really worshiping demons. Nature is the source of demons. This is what the early Christians uh, said in order to condemn and demonize the pagans. And even today, it's shocking how seemingly intelligent people will use the word pagan to mean Satanist or devil worshiper or someone involved with the demonic. It's entirely false. Entirely false. And it's a, a, a foundation or basis for Gnosticism. The name Hypatia comes to mind. Who was right. Hypatia and why is she so important to the Gnostics? Well, my book begins with a dramatic account of the murder of Hypatia. And in the historical records written around 400 A.D., there are seven accounts of this murder. It was a very big event. It happened in 415. Hypatia was a woman who lived in Alexandria, and her father, Theon, was a teacher of mathematics and head of the Alexandrian library. And Hypatia was a pagan. That is to say, she was not a Christian. She did not believe in the Christian idea of love. That doesn't mean she didn't believe in love. Make a very clear point about that. Pagans have their own concept of love, but it's not the Christian, Judeo-Christian concept of love. And she was a teacher and intellectual at the university school in Alexandria. And she taught science. And it, it is quite probable that she invented or played a role in the invention of the astrolabe which was a, a very important piece of technology that was useful for sailors and allowed them to sail around the world and explore the, the world. So she was a woman, a woman. of high intellectual attainment, mm -hmm. and she was murdered by a Christian mob in 415 A.D. in Alexander, murdered in the street as she was returning home from uh, teaching at the university. Uh, many historians say that the Dark Ages began with the death of Hypatia, with the murder of Hypatia, because from that point on, uh, the program of intellectual genocide went into high gear. And with the rise of Christianity, uh, every single document, every single library that the pagan intellectual world had established was destroyed. And the people who wrote the books were murdered or hounded into hiding. And uh, so the Dark Ages began uh, because the teachers and the intellectual and spiritual guides of the pagan world were liquidated. This is a, a true story. And this is a story that is rarely told from the viewpoint of the defeated. It's usually told from the viewpoint of the victors who were Christian teachers and Christian uh, ideologues. 
And I think, I think it's yeah. important, John. I usually don't like to read from a book, but I have to read just this this small paragraph so that people mm-hmm. who are listening know what really happened here. Mm-hmm. Let me just read this. The violence of the mob escalated rapidly, and they're referring to, to the murder of Hypatia. It's intensity mm-hmm. fed by the Russia's, uh, raucous uh, shouts of Peter the Reader. He called Hypatia a vile heretic, uh, heretic and a witch who believed uh, beguiled people through her beauty and her teachings, which were nothing but the wiles of Satan. Hypatia protested and cried for help, but a stiff blow broke her jaw. In a matter of minutes, she was on her knees in a pool of her own blood. Crushed under a flurry of blows and kicks, she was rapidly beaten to death. Not content merely to take her life, the mob pounded her naked body to a pulp and tore her limbs off her torso. The number of the attackers and the ferocity of their assault made it impossible for anyone witnessing the murder to intervene. And then, after they already killed her, wild-eyed with excitement, several members of the mob ran to the nearby har- harbor and scooped up the razor-sharp oyster shells to be found there in abundance. They returned and passed out shells, and Peter encouraged his henchmen to scrap every last morsel of flesh from Hypatia's bones. When the men were done, they took the scraped bones to a place called Sindron and burned them to ashes. Was that the end of the pagan world and Gnosticism? That is the dis- absolutely destruction of Gnosticism as far as the uh, Hypatia being an example of a Gnostic. She was a Gnostic. And the symbol, that, this is actually a graphic description of a murder. Now, you know, there's a movie recently called uh, Agora with uh, Rachel Weiss, which hmm. is actually the life of Apatia. Is that right? Now, I haven't seen that movie, but it's uh, been around, Agora. And uh, it may actually depict this murder in that, in that movie. Mel, what is so vivid about this murder is not only the extent to which they went of finally scraping the flesh off her bones and burning the bones, but it's the symbolism of that. What they did to Hypatia, they also did to the tradition that she represented. They also did to the vision story of the Gnostics, their story, their myth about our planet, their knowledge about the origin of humanity, their practices of mysticism, of sacred sexuality, of higher education of the human species, their teachings of the great works of literature and art. All of that flowering of pagan culture was destroyed in the same way that Hypatia was destroyed. And that is why that murder and that scene is indelible, can never get that out of your mind once you hear it. And the question that that scene raises is a really important one. Why did they have to do that? You know, I mean, we are told that the rise of Christianity in Europe, in the pagan world, was in one way a good thing, because Christianity is a religion of love, isn't it? Well, I ask you this question. If Christianity is a religion of love, what is the mark of love? What is the signature of love? I would say that one of the signatures of love is coexistence. In other words, if I love and I have love in my heart, then I have the spirit to coexist with others. But when you look at the history of the rise of Christianity, they did not tolerate coexistence. 
And even more than that, they targeted this particular group of people called the Gnostics. The fact of history is that the Gnostics and what they knew had to be destroyed, liquidated, for Christianity to come to power. And no historian has ever answered the question of why that had to be so. And was her murder the end of classical civilization in Mediterranean totally, Europe? Totally. Almost every historian you read who deals with the rise of Christianity and the end of classical pagan culture will say, 415 AD, murder of Hypatia, end of the classical world. Absolutely. So it's the end of paganism and the dawn of the Dark Ages then? Dawn of the Dark Ages, because Christianity... Uh, for the first thousand years, was so tyrannical and totalitarian that it would not allow people to have an option of any other story. So it destroyed the books, it destroyed all the literature, the, 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 the countless numbers of scrolls and manuscripts written by these Gnostics and these teachers in what were called the mystery schools, and I want to get to what that term means in a moment. And the real question is, How could they have been so threatening? What was so threatening about what these people knew that it had to be eliminated to the point of scraping the flesh off the bones? What was it? We didn't know, and there was no way of knowing until December of 1945 when a precious fragment of that knowledge was found that had survived because it was buried in jars in a cave in the desert. And what came out of that? What came out of that was a picture of the Gnostic view of the world, the Gnostic understanding of the story of the Earth, of our planet. I call it their vision story. The vision story that they taught, the vision story that was the basis of their mysticism. And also some insight into their practices, other things that they believed, the things that they taught. They were kind of like, they were spiritual teachers and trainers, the Gnostics. And finally, really, the answer came as to why they were so dangerous and why what they knew had to be eliminated. And that is that they had a, an argument against the Christian belief system. And this argument was so powerful that if it had been allowed to, to have a fair hearing, Christianity, the Judeo-Christian course of history as we know it, would never have ever happened. And one discussion we seem to be having on this show, John, all the time, is mm -hmm. that of the divine feminine. The Gnostics mm -hmm. worship a goddess. Was it They Sophia, did. the Gnostic fallen goddess? That's right. They, at the center of their vision, I call it a vision story. The, the Gnostics had a vision story, and the center figure in this story was a goddess called Sophia. I call her Sophia. Okay. And you can call her Sophia if you like, but I call her Sophia because it rhymes with desire. Uh -huh. And she and desire is a very important part of this story because the reason why we are here, the human species on this planet, is because of the desire of the goddess to perform a great experiment with humanity. 
And they tell this story. It is the most, one of the most beautiful myths. It is a totally unique myth. I call it the fallen goddess scenario. And when you get a little further into my book, into the second third, you'll see that I have recapitulated and restored this vision story. I'm the only scholar of Gnosticism who's done this, who's completely restored the story. I haven't invented anything. I've just reconstructed it out of the fragments that were found in this Nag Hammadi discovery. And the Gnostics risked their lives challenging the supremacy of the male creator. Why did, did men, why, why did men feel so threatened by women? Well, that's a really good question. Um, let's just say that the, that's a really, really good question. Because uh, the, the battle that happened at the time of Apatia was definitely a battle between the sexes in a way. Um, so I think I would try to answer your question a, a little bit indirectly by placing it in that context. Back in that context, the Gnostics were part of a network or movement of pagans who had a, a relationship to the divinity of the earth. This is the key phrase that you have to register. Their goddess that was central to their practice, their movement, was not somewhere out in space. She was not merely a symbol of the divine feminine. She was not merely a projection of Mother Nature. She was the divine presence of this planet. And you said, you used the word worship, Mel, which is a natural word to use, but not really accurate. They didn't really worship her. They interacted with her. They interacted with this divine presence. They encountered her in their practices. And they learned, they said that they learned everything they knew from her, from communication and interaction with this divine figure. Now, we're talking there about people who have a relationship to the divine feminine. And those people were a very great threat to another group of people who came in with the biblical idea of God. Judeo-Christian Islamic idea. In other words, God is male, is not on the planet, is somewhere out in another world, is invisible, and he lays down the rules of how we are to live. And we men, we prophets with beards, receive the rules of God. We are the intermediaries, and we are all men, and we are in control. And this whole system, this whole male control system, which is using religion as a tool of social control, was tremendously threatened by these people who were connected to the goddess for a number of reasons. But first and foremost, because the people who were connected with the goddess pointed out that the system of what I call divine paternalism, the system of the belief in the off-planet Father God, is insane. They came out and said so. They didn't just say, you know, they said, okay, we see, we see what your belief system is. You think the earth was created in seven days and that there is only a male creator God. There is no, he doesn't even have a wife or partner. He's there all by himself. And we're here to tell you 
that we have been in the practice of spiritual work and discipline for thousands of years. We belong to a very ancient tradition, and we want to warn you that this belief system is insane. And that was very, very upsetting to the people who, uh, who got that message, you know. And they had to eliminate the Gnostics because the Gnostics had the ability, they had the cogency, the sobriety, the spiritual vision, and the courage to come out and say, your belief system is wrong and delusional, and it will do enormous harm to humanity. And one aspect that caught my eye was that the Gnostics were inspired by a sacred theory of the earth. Let me read this part. Mm -hmm. Gnostics were accomplished mystics inspired by a sacred theory of the earth, but they were not religious in the conventional sense. That is, they did not impose a moral code, doctrinal formulas, and institutional authority. That's right. The Gnostic message had two components, a sacred vision of the earth and a radical critique of salvationist doctrines uh, centered on the Judeo-Christian Messiah, especially the Redeemer complex. The Gnostic critique was brutally suppressed because it challenged the core beliefs of imperialist Roman religion, beliefs that have as much, if not more, political utility as they do spiritual veracity. What's your take on that? Totally. Totally. Yeah. Uh, Let me make it clear to the readers, because uh, I don't want to be throwing around the word Christianity. You know, obviously, when you're talking to John Lash, you're going to be subjected to a certain amount of Christianity bashing. I want to make sure that people understand exactly how I bash Christianity. What I'm bashing is not the thought that we should love each other or help each other or be kind to each other, you know, Uh, which are supposed to be part of Christian ethics. As a matter of fact, those uh, values are part of many other ethical systems. And Christianity certainly does not have a monopoly on love and kindness and generosity. No, what I am critiquing is the same thing that the Gnostics critiqued. I call it the Redeemer Complex, and it has four components. It's a belief system. It's not an ethical system. The Gnostics did not criticize the ethics of the early Christians. For them, it was obvious, of course, we all are going to be better off if we're kind to each other and help each other. Pagans believed in the natural goodness of human beings. So insofar as Christianity uh, states the natural goodness, there's no conflict. What they critiqued, was the four points of the Redeemer complex, which are, one, the world is created by a off-planet Father God, like an artifact, the way that the earth, the way that a potter creates a pot. Second point, the off-planet Father God designates a chosen people to fulfill his will. Third point, The off-planet Father God sends a Messiah or emissary to his chosen people to help them fulfill his plan. And fourth point, because none of this works out and humanity doesn't go along with the plan, the off-planet Father God at the end of time brings doomsday upon the world and he inflicts an apocalypse of retribution taking the chosen ones to heaven and condemning those who do not follow his orders to hell. This is the belief system. This is the core belief system of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 
It's packaged in different ways in those three religions. But it is the core belief system. And the Gnostics, like Hypatia, when they saw this belief system gaining credence in Rome, in Palestine, in Alexandria, in places around the Mediterranean, in the first and second and third century, they came out of the mystery schools where they were teachers, and they said, hey, hold on a minute, hold on. Let's have an open discussion about this new belief system in the Redeemer. And they pointed out really devastating things about this belief system. And for that, they were targeted for elimination. So much for thou shall not kill. So much for thou shall not kill. So much for let's have peaceful coexistence. If Christianity is such a wonderful thing, then why can't people just embrace it and accept it out of their own hearts? and allow any other belief system to coexist alongside of it. And if it's so much better, well, there's no competition, is there? But there was very serious competition, my friend. And I'll tell you, this story has never been told in the way that I tell it. I'm telling one of the most important events of world history, the history of our species, from the point of view of the losers. And that's a story that's got to be told. Because the winners, the history is written by the winners, of course, and we have Look to dig Look at where the, the winners are taking us, Yes, you know? Look at what's happening on the planet right now. There's a really lot of rumors cooking, as you know, on the internet, that we're heading for a very big doomsday scenario. You know that. And we know now that these scenarios are all faked, and that religion is used as a pretext for war and to divide people and manipulate them. We know that now, don't we? We're waking up to that, aren't we? Well, I'll tell you, the Gnostics saw it coming. The Gnostics saw it 1,800 years ago. They saw it coming. And they knew that if humanity, if this belief system with these four points in it was imposed on humanity, it would do two things. First, it would function as a program of social enslavement. It's not really a, pro, a religion. It's a, it's a program of social psychosocial control. And the second thing they realized is that it would lead to terror and confusion and insanity. And that's pretty much where it's leading. That's where we are, actually. That's where we are. And so I show in my book that, the, that these uh, Gnostics saw then what has, uh, you know, w where we are going today. They saw it coming. And incidentally, you keep using the word coexistence. I have something to say, by the way. Yeah. One of my favorite areas in Spain is where you are, Andalusia. I love Granada, Granada. There you had Christians, Jews, and Muslims living That's side right. by side and practicing their respective religions in peace. Churches, synagogues, and mosques right next to each other. That's right. What changed, That's right. What changed that, John? Talk about living in peace. Well, living in peace is only possible if uh, those who embrace a belief system are not driven by that belief system to impose it on others and are not driven by that belief system to want to control what others do. You know, tolerance is the word that describes the pagan world. And even long after the pagan world was destroyed, There were pockets of tolerance, like you're talking about Granada. It was in Christian Europe or in Moorish-occupied Spain. Right. It was a small pocket of tolerance. But outside of that, 
there was enormous intolerance uh, through the intolerance of Islam and the intolerance of, of Christianity. So peace is only possible. You know, religions have brought more war and destruction and division to this world, these Abrahamic religions, than any other factor in human experience. Uh, this should be obvious to, to anyone who looks at the historical record. You know, there's been more war and genocide and murder and holocausts like the witch, the holocausts against pagans and witches that went on for centuries since the message of the Prince of Peace has been broadcast upon the land. How can that be? There's something deeply insane and deeply schizophrenic going on with these Abrahamic religions. And the Gnostics were able to point it out. So I dedicate the first six chapters of my book to what I call describing the problem. I don't know if that's probably what you've read up until now. Describing the problem of these, this Redeemer complex, this belief system, and how it came into existence. And then the rest of my book is actually dedicated to the solution to that problem which is looking into what the Gnostics knew and what they taught as a choice for humanity of another kind of story, not just another belief system, because Gnosticism is not an alternative religion. It's an alternative to religion. But and let, me, so, go, let yeah. me go Let me go. back, if I may, to, to that sure. part of Granada. You know, many people think, that the Moors, uh, the Moors, let's demonize the Moors for a second. Right. You know, when they came for 800 years and so on. But when you look at Granada, it was during the time of the Moors that the different religions and peoples were cohabitating next to each other. It was That's when right. the Christians retook that area of the world that they started building churches on top of the mosques and on top of the uh, synagogues and even the the uh, Alhambra uh, uh, palace was Moorish, and they completely put a more Christian aspect of architecture on top of it. That's right. And that's because, you may wonder how this could be, that's because these religions that are based on the Redeemer complex, that four-part formula, are not really religions at all. I mean, if you think religion is about spirituality and love, then they're not religions. They're social control systems. And that's all they are. And they're about conquest, programming, and control. And the Gnostics, who had a real, genuine spirituality of the earth and of the divine feminine, saw through this hoax, as some of us today are, are beginning to see through it. You know, uh, Because, you know, you can throw out those four points that I mentioned, the off-planet Father God, the chosen people, the Messiah, and the, uh, the, day of, uh, the day of revelation, the day of reckoning, of the judgment day. You can throw them out and still be a loving, generous, kind person who coexists with others and does good to your brothers and sisters because they don't have anything to do with the ethics of living in a compassionate way. And that's what the Gnostics saw. They saw that that belief system was delusional and very, very harmful. So I concentrate in my book on the problem in the first seven, six chapters, but I don't want to spend too much time on the problem because the solution to the problem is so beautiful. And I was able to go back into the Gnostic materials and find what they taught, not what they believed, 
because they were teachers. What they taught and practiced, and that is such a, a vision story for us today and such a healing story that I really believe can put humanity back on course where these salvationist religions have taken us toward uh, an endgame scenario that's very, right now, playing itself out. And an interesting, Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. And an interesting point in your book, uh, not in his image, you talk about how the Spanish conquistadores had been themselves abused, and they did the same with the natives in the New World. Genocide, That's right. and ecocide, That's right. once again. But, John, was greed the primary motive for European conquest of the New World? Uh, I think that greed was the primary motive, yeah. I uh, certainly look at what they did. They robbed those native cultures blind. When they couldn't murder them, they robbed them blind. They took their land in Mexico and uh, Central America and South America. They took enormous amount of gold and silver. You know, the richness of the Catholic Church today comes from the gold that was taken from the Maya and the Aztecs and the Incas, you know. So greed was definitely a factor. But what really drove the conquest of the New World was the what I call the victim perpetrator bond, the victim perpetrator bond in, in uh, pop psychology is called abuse bonding. And this is something that's quite well known. I'm sure some of the listeners have heard of it and may have even experienced it. It was generally discussed 20 or 30 years ago in the, in the circles of recovery of John Bradshaw and people like that, talking about dysfunctional families. And one of the things that was observed was that in a dysfunctional family, Say if there's an abusive father, say a classical situation that the father's an alcoholic and he abuses his wife or his children. The people who are abused form a bond with the abuser. This is a psychological reality and they will not betray the abuser. It's called abuse bonding or victim perpetrator bonding. And it's a very well-known phenomenon. It also occurs in hostage situations where it's called the Stockholm syndrome. That is, the people are taken hostage, they're abused, terrorized and uh, uh, controlled by the people who uh, take them hostage, and then they become bonded to those people, and they adopt the beliefs of the people who are victimizing them. This is a well-known syndrome. Like in the movie Dog Day Afternoon. Like in the movie Dog Day Afternoon, right? And a number of other movies, too, have shown this. So all I've done is I've taken that principle, which is very well-known, I'm sure many of the listeners have heard about it, and I've applied it to history. And I asked the question, okay, when the European uh, uh, sailors and the European explorers went to the New World, they arrived in an absolute paradise. In the Caribbean, in uh, North America and South America, they arrived in a complete wonderland. This was really the New World. And I have to ask you to consider this question. Why didn't they just walk around with their jaw open and their eyes open like children? learning from the people who were there. Columbus said that the first, the Indians he saw were the happiest people in the world, and it really puzzled him. Columbus admitted because he couldn't figure out what they were happy about. <laughs> but he didn't try to learn either. Why didn't those first Europeans have a coexistence, a peaceful coexistent curiosity toward the natives? No, instead, they immediately started to perpetrate genocide on them. Why did they do that? They did that 
because they came from a thousand years of genocide in Europe. And they were simply repeating on others what had been done to them. So the virus was spreading. And I think I can, I can, like enca- a virus. I can encaps- encapsulate this by saying that the Indians knew that life was equated with the earth and its resources, that America was a paradise, and they could not comprehend why the intruders from the east were determined to destroy all that was Indian as well as America itself. And That's right. They, they perpetuate, it's perpetuative until this day. That's right. It is perpetuated in this day by the great corporations, and often they use Christianity or one kind of another religious uh, scam uh, as their cover. But greed and this delusional form of religion, which the Gnostics exposed, go to hand in hand. And so it was really a double whammy. It was both those things that produced the destruction of the new world. And we're not at the end of it yet, but I'd say we're about two years away from the end of the complete destruction of the new world due to this, uh, this syndrome. What is the Redeemer complex? The Redeemer complex is the belief that there is something wrong with you that can only be corrected by a superhuman intervention. The Redeemer complex is exemplified in its highest form in the figure of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Redeemer and the Savior. Those who believe in Jesus Christ believe that they cannot, out of their own self and their own person and character, fulfill their humanity. We are flawed. We are tainted by original sin, if you want to use that language. But there's something wrong with us morally, and the only way it can be corrected is by a superhuman power who comes in and sacrifices itself for us in some, in some way, or else at the end of time judges us and condemns us to damnation or rewards us for having lived according to the rules dictated by the Messiah and the God who sent him. That is the Redeemer complex. It's just a belief system. And many people have embraced that belief system. One of the things I point out in my book is, and this is not a kind thing I'm going to say now, so fasten your seatbelts, folks. That belief system is so devious and delusional and harmful that it corrupts your humanity to adopt it. But on the other hand, your humanity has to be pretty corrupted in the first place before you were even adopted. That's how bad it is. It's completely unnecessary. It has never helped anyone. It has never saved anyone. It has never improved the human condition. What improves the human condition is the natural goodness of people when it's allowed to express itself. We do not need a superhuman redeemer and some divine plan laid down by big daddy in the sky. This is what the Gnostics objected to. This is what they protested. And this is what I protest today. And I have to tell you, I have a problem when you see a baby born. That is the definition of purity. Yes. And yet they're called a victim of the original sin, almost as if they're tainted from the moment that they're born. But let me clarify that I don't mean the following comment to sound anti-religious. I respect everyone's beliefs. 
but it was Arthur C. Clarke who said, the greatest tragedy in mankind's entire history may be the hijacking of morality by religion. To many people, the assumption that pagans were irreligious immediately implies that they were also immoral. That's right. Why is there a belief, John, that there can be no, no morality without a religious framework? It's a scam. It's just a scam. There's nothing mysterious about it. There's nothing mystical about it. It doesn't require a secret societies using occult powers and casting a spell over humanity. It is just a scam. It is a scam to tell people that they can only know how to do the right thing if the rules are given to them by, by an unreachable off-planet authority. Because if someone accepts that, then they default on their own moral authority. If someone needs the rules of the, of the Ten Commandments to tell them how to behave, and they need to believe that those rules come from a divine authority beyond the earth, then they have already defaulted on their own conscience. Because the truth is, only your own conscience can tell you what is right and wrong. That is how human being is made. We're not made to follow rules that are fictitiously ascribed to some off-planet spiritual power. We're not made for that way. And those of us who adopt that program uh, have put our own humanity at risk by doing so. I mean, this is a very deep thing. We're getting into some very deep things here. And these are disturbing uh, points we're discussing, Mel. But these are exactly the points we need to discuss to get an appreciation, at least in this introduction we're doing, an appreciation of how profound this Gnostic message is. What a warning it contains. Yeah. I was at a conference the other day and a lady said something that caught my attention. She said that animals were given instincts and humans were yes. given intuition. But we have yes. been so dumbed down that we can't use either or. But even Aldous Huxley and Carl Jung said that humans left to their own proper instincts will act in a morally responsible way. Way. That's right. And that was the platform of pagan uh, morality as well. I challenge anyone here, if you really want to know what paganism is and to be a responsible person who is able to make your own judgment, read the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. And this is a book you can read in three hours. It's a very thin book that contains like a personal journal of Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman emperor, and he was a pagan. And this book contains the essence of pagan ethics. And you will find in there, in the most simple language imaginable, love, truth, and trust in the natural goodness of human beings. We are all here to help each other. This is the essence of pagan ethics and morality. And on this show, John, we always like to get to the truth, and by looking at the source of the problems, we can find a lot of truths. In talking with you tonight, I think of the late Terence McKenna, who defined mm. the dominator culture as hierarchical, paternalistic, materialistic, male-dominated, and evolutionary maladaptive. That's right. Can we trace the patriarchal dominator system in the West to the Roman Empire? We can trace it back before that to uh, the rise of the theocracy in uh, ancient Babylon and Sumeria. Theocracy is the source of our problem. And if you don't know what theocracy is, you don't understand it, it's 
probably hard for you to understand what's all what's wrong in the world today. I'm not saying that the world is totally wrong, but some things are very, very wrong in our government, in our concept of society. And it all goes back to one thing, theocracy. Theocracy means the claim that the society is ruled by gods. That is to say, superhuman agencies beyond the earth. That is theocracy. And uh, Judeo-Christian religion is just an expression of theocracy. It's a form of theocracy. The, the Vatican is a, is a headquarters of theocracy. You know, and theocracy is wrong. There is no way you can spin it. It's wrong for our species. There is no way you can make it look good. And it has been used as an instrument of conquest, repression, genocide, and deception for thousands of years. And we must break out of theocracy into a true way of seeing the human story. And Terence was very aware of that, and he called that the dominator culture. Any culture that is produced from the theocracy concept is a dominator culture. And John, we have to take our one and only intermission. Okay. Before we take the break, uh, how do we get in touch with your work, all these great books? Well, uh, the main thing is metahistory.org has about 24 books on it itself. So you can go and delve into that. I suggest that you click on the site guide and just take a tour through the site to see what's in there. And then my book, latest book, Not In His Image, is really the one that contains uh, the essence of what we're talking about this evening. And, and that's the place to go, the logical place to go from here. I want to thank Jim Nichols, because he was the one who referred me to you and to the book, Not In His Image. I cannot put it down. I got it a week ago, and I read, I, I like to spend time reading a book so that I can absorb. And I will continue reading it. It is a wonderful book, and I highly recommend it. There are links on our website where you can get it, too. Please don't go anywhere. We have so much more to cover. We have questions from the audience around the world and more discussions to take place here with John Lamb Lash. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Michael Cremo, and you're listening to Veritas Radio. Veritas Radio. 